best part of the Thinking Man's Guide to Football by Dr. Z mm -hmm. is that it was written in 1984, and he writes as if the USFL is permanent. Uh, <laughs> it was successful enough in its first couple of years that he, the way he writes about whenever he mentions some USFL coach or team or something, it's like he writes about it like this is not like something that's going to be gone in two years. He writes about them like they're NFL teams. Wow. Yeah. Probably yeah, looking Jim, around now, like, what is happening? The, Jim Morris. People are tuning in or wondering, what? Why? USFL? <laughs> we were talking about Steve Spurrier jerseys, and it just got us to the Tampa Bay Bandits, and that got us to this. So, hi, and welcome to the Football Outsiders live stream, everybody. I'm Aaron Schatz from Football Outsiders Editor in Chief. Mike Tanier is joining me today. JP Acosta is joining me today to preview week 13 in the NFL. I can't believe we're already this far into the season, but I think I say that every week. Uh, thank you for joining us on uh, YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, Twitter, in the little widget in the corner of our website. If you're listening afterwards on the Football Outsiders Podcast Network, please don't forget to subscribe and rate the show and let other people know about the show. Let all your friends know about us talking football here every day at one o'clock Eastern. And uh, before we preview this week's games, we should make sure that we hit up the limited time offer that you will see in the corner of the page, this corner, this corner of the page that says 99 cents a week for FO plus yeah. that gives you all kinds of DVOA splits in history, uh, fantasy football, research stats, projections every week picks against the spread and all of our stuff fo plus if you get an annual subscription now it is only 99 cents a week for a full year so subscribe support the site get yourself lots of good data and without further ado let's talk about week 13 we're going to hit on a, a few games from week 13 and then the last 15 minutes of the show Parker Fleming is going to come on, and we're going to talk about the college conference championship games that are this weekend, uh, which are also, it's a big football weekend between start Saturday and Sunday, and I suppose starting tonight. So let's start tonight with uh, Dallas at the New Orleans Saints. So we've got the graphic, I hope. Cowboys make the playoffs in 99% of Sims when they win this game, 87% if they lose. Saints, 53% with a win, 16% with a loss. Wow. So the Saints really need this one. And therefore, they're going to the well with Hill. They are going, finally have broken out the love child. Jason <laughs> got over his concussions, apparently foot problems. He's gotten over foot problems. He's ready to start. So Taysom Hill will start this game, but no Alvin Kamara, no Ryan Ramchick, no Teron Armstead, no Andrus Pete. Uh, of course, no Michael Thomas hasn't been there all year. Ooh. And no Jameis Winston, Taysom Hill. <laughs> this really feels like Taysom Hill is being thrown a little bit into the fire. Imagine going like coming back from injury and like, yeah, we're going to have Ryan Ramchick, we're going to have Teron Armstead, Alvin Kamara is going to be back. And then all of a sudden you get here today and it's like, ah, I don't think so. <laughs> they're, they're not be here. Actually, Tony Jones will be your back and some guy I've never heard of will be your left tackle and have fun out there. Ah, yes. Tony <laughs> Jones, noted vaunted running back. But I really am curious to see how the offense changes with Taysom Hill at quarterback. I think Sean Payton has done a really great job of molding what the quarterback does best for him yeah. around that offense. Like Jameis Winston – 100% not the same passer as Drew Brees. Drew Brees was more timing, quick throws, whereas Jameis, they used a lot more play action. They allowed him to unleash the ball going deep. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Taysom Hill, I really don't know. I mean, they're they're going to use him in the run game. That'll make, they'll make you have to add an extra gap that defenders have to account for. Right. But as a quarterback, I mean, what are we doing? Like, I don't know what we're going to get from Taysom Hill as a quarterback. We had four games of this last year, and the passing game strategy was six offensive linemen wait for Michael Thomas to get open. If you go back and, and now look, there's no Michael Thomas. And I don't think they have six offensive linemen anymore. Oh, <laughs> I don't think they have six 
Right. So, so I don't know what they're doing. I, I, this might be an upgrade over Trevor Simeon because that was like zero offense until it was prevent defense time. But it, I, I can't, I cannot fathom. The, the best thing I say about this is the Cowboys have their coaching staff COVID outbreak. So they're going to be without multiple coaches and they're pulling coaches off the street to come help. And if there's one team to say, hey, you didn't practice, you were in quarantine, and we're going to run the option against you, and they're going to go, one team that could fall apart like that, it might be the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, Dallas has been wrecked by injury. It's been something that I'm really curious that a lot of people haven't talked about when they're kind of in their loss against the Raiders. Cooper didn't have CeeDee Lamb, didn't have Tyron Smith. They've been doing a lot of reshuffling with their offensive line. Yes, where they're moving Terrence Steele from right tackle to right tackle. Connor In the same McGovern, series, it's the same series, and they're just flipping them around. <laughs> it's really, it's really weird. I don't understand why they're doing it, but now they're going to have everybody back, hopefully. So this could yeah, get Cooper. Ugly. Cooper is the only one I think who they're not sure about, but He's Lamb back. is back, yes. and I know um, Lawrence Dexter Lawrence is back. I think yep. Steele's back too, or and they activated Cooper. Cooper's, uh, Cooper's active. Yeah, I think Tyron Smith is going to play. I think Terrence Steele's moving the right tackle if Lyle Collins can't play. But this will probably be the first time we've seen the Cowboys offense fully healthy since like week three. Hmm. So it could either be like really ugly for a Saints defense that has been susceptible to big plays this season, or they're going to lean on Taysom Hill in the run game and turn this into a Wisconsin football game. Bill <laughs> Salerno says the Saints are going to play offense like a high school football team. Yeah. Yep. I high mean, school, that's Simeon was better than you think he has been because the fourth quarter thing is like really a thing, but mm-hmm. not all of his fourth quarters were like against prevent defenses. He had the fourth quarter week against Tennessee where they came back and almost tied the game, and they had the fourth quarter against Atlanta where he came back and took a lead by playing yeah. well in the fourth quarter. And then um, the defense gave up that really, really long Cordell Patterson play and the field goal, and the Atlanta ended up winning the game. But Simeon has not been that bad. Like, Hill's passing last year mm-hmm. uh, was worse than what Simeon has been this year. Right. Well, that's what – but and yet that's what they're going with. I, I, I don't know. I, I remain a Simeon skeptic because it's like we saw the Titans – late game defense last week against uh, New England and how good that is. And the, the Falcons are the Falcons. But I, I would say that those those other defenses were starting to let up, and that's where he led the comeback. Oh, I'm not saying Simeon was good. <laughs> I'm just saying he wasn't he, he wasn't he, it wasn't a complete zero. So I don't know whether this is going to be an improvement. Like, I think there's a lot of people who just feel like Simeon's been a complete zero. This has to be an improvement. Right. Simeon has not been a complete zero, and I don't know if this is an improvement. It's, I mean, from a fantasy football perspective, it's an improvement. I happen to own Taysom Hill in the Scott Fishbowl, so I'm very happy to actually play him this week. If Trevor Simeon isn't better than a guy who's on punt gunner, if he's, <laughs> he's a $40 million punt gunner, then it's time to have some discussions about um, what that quarterback room was like after Jameis Winston. Because Well, if – He's a $40 million punt gunner. That's enough to have some discussions to start with. Right. There's something going on there. Look, right. I think if this really was Andrus Pete, Ryan Ramchick, Toronto, Alvin Kamara, and Taysom Hill, I'm like, yeah, we're going to be Air Force. We're going to be, uh, you know, Navy. I could see something there. I could see, like, yeah, go ahead. Without all that, where well, you can't even pretend that there's going to be a realistic, like, oh, they're going to blow your mind with the option. I don't say it. Like yeah. the deep shot, right? Like they've got Marquez Callaway, Deontay Harris. Is is Hill going to hit a deep shot? Like last year there was that one deep throw to Emmanuel Sanders that just hung in the air. A punt. And Sanders came down with it, which is great for Hill's numbers, but let's be real. <laughs> you might get the DPIs. You're going for – you're going. What's the, what's the guy's name who had four DPIs? Was that Brown in the uh, – uh, Anthony Brown, yeah. Anthony Brown. Hope that, the, that Sean Hockley wants to do another – Flag day drum solo or whatever, and that's how you try and get your win. <laughs> um, I will point out really a weird stat. Dallas is second in adjusted line yards on offense, mm-hmm. um, and they're 20th in run DVOA, which is like a really weird, huge discrepancy, but a lot of it is Prescott. Prescott has been so bad on his runs this year mm. 
that they would be 10th in run DVOA if you just take out the 10 running plays for Prescott. Wow. That's odd. He's fumbled three times. Oh, okay. Okay. There, there it is. I, I can see that. <clears throat> um, I also noticed you went under first quarter, which I, I in the walkthrough today, which surprised me because Dallas, weirdly, is sixth in offense and dead last in defense in the first quarter. And yet you have a team that hasn't scored in the fourth quarter in four consecutive first, games. First, first quarter, right? First quarter, excuse me, in four consecutive games in the New Orleans Saints versus a team that has not practiced in a solid week because, <laughs> of, gotta give. because of quarantine. So I feel I, – I do get what you're saying. I was a little worried there, but I could see this be 6 nothing with two field goal drives at the end of that first quarter. So I went under there. And that's the only play I made because, again, I was writing yesterday. I didn't know if Amari Cooper was going to be healthy. I didn't know what the, the – the rest of these the line has moved to six. It yes. is now Dallas by six. And I didn't know what to do with this for the FO plus picks because I didn't know how much to penalize the Saints for the quarterback situation. So I ended up making this a no pick game. But I hmm. think subjectively, if you ask me who I would take with the minus six, it would be Dallas. I feel like this is the get this is get right week for Dallas. Yeah, I think I would take Dallas as well. New Orleans is missing too much, especially on the offensive line. A lot of their wide zone run game is really effective because of Teron Armstead, Andres Pete, Ryan Ramchek, and Alvin Kamara being great at what they do. They don't have those guys in this game. They're going to have Tony Jones Jr. and a bunch of backup offensive linemen. <laughs> Ingram, I think Ingram will be back for this game. And Mark Ingram. Yes, Mark Ingram. Yes. And yes. if Demarcus Lawrence and Michael Parsons, if that defense is able to pin their ears back and get an early lead, then it could get really it could get really bad for the Saints offense. So I would take Dallas minus six. Right. Yeah. Liked them better minus four and a half a couple days ago, but I'm I'll go with minus six. Yeah, I'm 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 on that. All right. Next game we want to talk about is the biggest 1 p.m. game and actually the most important game for playoff odds, which is the Los Angeles Chargers at the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, Chargers make the playoffs 72% of the time if they win. Only 33% if they lose. Mm. And the Bengals are similar, 71% if they win, 34% if they lose. So this is a really important game for two teams that are trying to make the playoffs. Interestingly, the Bengals are favored by three. Mm. Football Outsiders DVOA and, by the way, ESPN's FPI also have the Chargers higher than the Bengals. Right. By the way, uh, JP, Adam A references this week, and they both centered around Justin Herbert. I, I don't know why. I think Justin Herbert is a walking anime reference. The, I think that's what we'll go with. He's got hair. floppy hair. He's got the anime hair. Yeah. So is Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence has a little bit of an anime hair thing too, but I think uh, he, you know, uh, Herbert also has a little bit of that anime personality where he's sort of the shy kid. Who's yeah. Like, right. Right. So uh, you can kind of see you can kind of see where we were going with that. Yeah, I think. With the Chargers, kind of something that I wrote about for any given Sunday this week is they kind of – I think their offense is good, but it can be better in terms of creating more deep shots and using Justin Herbert's talents to the maximum ability. I mean, he's a good quick game thrower, but that's not – it's like you're putting safety on some. – you're trying to constrain him and hold him in when you really don't have to. I think Joe Lombardi coming from the Saints passing tree, he's been around Drew Brees a lot. He knows Drew Brees is really good with the timing, quick throws. Drew Brees is killer at quick game. Justin Herbert can do that, but where Justin Herbert is at his best is in play action. He's going to take those deep shots down the field because he's really accurate throwing the ball. And deep. he's got the receivers for it. Mike Williams is a receiver. guy to catch those balls. Even the uh, the younger, lesser guys, Jalen Guyton is a guy to catch those balls. You know. Right. They have the personnel to do it, but it's just it's weird seeing them constrain the offense. They're constricting everything, and it's making everything so tight. And against Denver, Denver was able to sit on those short routes and break up a lot of passes because they're just not going deep. And then once they threw it deep, of course, I think Herbert tried to do too much a little bit to try and press and make the game a little closer. But I think the offense is going to have to kind of open things up a little bit more vertically down the field, which could help against a um, Bengals defense where I think the front 
dictates what the coverage does a little bit more for Cincinnati, mm-hmm. where if they're getting pressure, they can kind of force you into mistakes. But I think a big problem in this game is going to be the Chargers' run defense against yeah. the Bengals' run game. I think the Bengals have kind of, since I wrote about them for any given Sunday, you heard it here first, Zach Taylor reads my stories. Their under center run game has gotten really good. I think mm-hmm. Joe Mixon has done really well in the outside zone run game. Zach Taylor being a McVay disciple, he comes from that tree. They run that really well. The Chargers, for that Brandon Staley defense to work, you have to have guys in the middle of that defense can't, that can control a gap and a half that can be like your Sebastian Joseph Day that they had with the Rams last year. They don't have those type of guys. They have the one-gap guys. Jerry Tillery is a one-gap penetrator. Against Denver, they just got mauled in the run game. Yeah, Denver was moving them consistently. And against Cincy, it could be more of the same because they've done really well in the outside zone run scheme recently. Right. And they were, they were moving could, the Steelers around. They were moving the Steelers around. They were moving the Steelers around. I could see a situation where the Bengals just completely run all over the Chargers. But I also could – and I mean, I, I think it's more likely that the Chargers passing game – Gains yards on the Bengals, and that both teams are score. Both teams are scoring. I like for ESPN's best bets column tomorrow. I'm taking the over on this game. Oh yeah, I would you, take the over. And, and I know what you're saying about that. Like in our variant stats, yeah, that over's up at fifty point five. That's still doable though. In our variant stats, the Bengals are actually like sixth in most variant team, but everyone ahead of them, you can kind of tell the story. Uh, the the Patriots are high in variance, but they've been improving. The Bills are high in variance, but they've been declining. They've been insane. Yeah, they, they've been kind <laughs> the of insane. Bills have been weird. Yeah, the Saints, everybody got hurt. The Browns, everybody was hurt for like a couple of months, etc. The Bengals, they just—they're just insane. They're all over the place. And in Friday's walkthrough, I'm going to talk about how their passing DVOA has gone from like negative 96 to positive 96 in various games. You don't know what you're going to get. So, like you said, Aaron, I could see the Bengals going full super scion and destroying everybody. We're going belly up in this game because we've seen both Bengals teams this year. Yeah, right. I mean, remember this this team, yeah, they've got good wins against the Steelers and Raiders, but it was just three weeks ago that they lost by 25 to Cleveland. And it was just the week before that they lost by any number to the Jets, right? It doesn't matter what the number was, it was a loss to the Jets. I do think that variance is really interesting, especially when you look at the uh, Bengals offense because a lot of their offense in the passing game is reliant on winning the one-on-one routes against Pittsburgh. Joe Burrow was able to hit those one-on-one one go balls with T Higgins. Those work yes. against the Jets against the Browns. Those did not work. I don't know if it's going to work against the Chargers passing defense, but they could lean more on the run game in this game, but I definitely take the over. You can't, but you can't predict that said, Oh, well, they faced better corners, so they couldn't get the one-on-one matchups they wanted. Because, again, it was the Jets, you know, and, and the, the Browns have injury problems all over their secondary. You can't say – so you can't even say, well, this, with a stronger secondary, you can shut them down. You don't know what shuts down or turns off the Bengals. Joey Seps would like to point out, by the way, it's Saiyan, not Scion. JP was very polite and let me have my senior moment there, Joey. And you I, guess, I'm not yeah. a yeah. I guess Joey was just saying. Just saying. <laughs> um, the Chargers' past weaknesses, by the way, don't seem like good ones to have against the Bengals. Wide receiver one and tight end. So it could be a big Azuma game. <laughs> it's always a big Azuma game. <laughs> it's always a big Azuma game. And then it was a sample. The other tight end gets the catches after at the end. Of the yeah, game. but also Jamar Chase, maybe a big uh, Jamar Chase. Uh, you know, he hasn't had a big fantasy game in a while. Well, I could do, I'm going to look him up right now on the props. That could be a fun matchup between the uh, Chargers outside corners and Jamar Chase. I think Asante Samuel Jr. has played re- has played well in that uh, defense. Mm-hmm. But curious. he's a smaller guy, right? So like Chase, guy. Goes right. Make, if Chase goes to make that point of the catch, the high point catch, Samuel's going to have a harder time with that. Yep, him, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, those are all bigger guys who will – Oh, Samuel will not play, says CCX3. He is injured. Well – that's a problem. Could That's that could be a problem for the and, and the chase over under 63.5, very manageable. Yes. Remember, they're not just throwing deep to him. They are trying to get him the ball on screens and some underneath things. So you're not just waiting for the big play on that. 63.5 is very tempting. 
for Jamar Chase. So what do you guys think about the uh, the line is Bengals by three? Chargers. I mean, I'm going to go with our numbers and say Chargers, but especially by getting the points. The Chargers, they move the ball, and then they allow the ball to get moved on them. So it comes down to field goals, which they stink at. Opposing field goals, which they've had horrible luck at, I write about in today's walkthrough, where nobody's missed inside of 50 yards. No one's missed an extra point against them. And then fourth down conversions, which they're good at, but sometimes it goes the other way on them. But if I look at just the teams, I think the Chargers day-to-day, moment-to-moment, are the better team. So if I got to make a pick, that's what I'm going with. Oh, man. This this is an odd game to pick because the Chargers and Bengals, if they're so high variance, you lean towards special teams. But the yeah. Chargers special teams has been perennially terrible. Yeah. And the Bengals are pretty and good. The Bengals are as just high, as high variance as special teams as they are in every other aspect of the game. Man, I think I'm going to go Chargers, but I could definitely see an outcome where the Bengals take this game. Yeah, it seems like a high variance game on both ends. Like it could it could be a blowout and it could be a blowout in either direction or it could be a close game in either direction. Right. Well, I might take that chase. though. and Azuma, if you like that, I think it was 20.5. Maybe I'll just play some props and forget about the rest of it. And this is Nash. This game, I mentioned this yesterday, but um, it's not a national game because it's 1 p.m., but this is the game that's being shown in most of the country. So a lot of people will see this. I'm going to, this is the first time I think in a long time I'll be able to really concentrate and watch the Bengals. So, yeah, it should be interesting. Uh, Let's move to 4 p.m. with Washington at Las Vegas. Yes, this is a game that matters for the playoffs a good Mm -hmm. amount because whoever loses this game is pretty much out. Uh, Washington, 25% with a win, 8% with a loss. The Raiders, 32% with a win, 13% with a loss. And, I mean, the biggest thing about this game is, I think, is uh, both of these teams are better on offense than defense. And just that that Washington defense, in particular the secondary, has been so, so terrible this year. I could totally see Derek Carr just passing all over them all day. I could also see Heineke going going for some good numbers against this Raiders defense that is very simplistic. Once you get past that front four, and that's one of my biggest things I wrote down as a key to the game, is going to be the battle in the trenches. I think in ESPN's pass block win rate, I think Washington is, has Charles Leno's fourth in individual pass block win rate. Max Crosby is eighth in pass rush win rate. This game's going to come down to winning in the trenches. I think. Although isn't Crosby, I think, is on the other side. Crosby's on the defensive left. So yeah. he would go against the right tackle. It's Yannick and Gakwe, I think. Gakwe. And Gakwe and Crosby going up against Charles Leno and their right tackle is going to be the biggest matchup of the game. I think Taylor Heineke, they, he saves all of his energy for third and fourth down. And I absolutely <laughs> love it. He goes, I. I called him in my notes. I called him base boosted Ryan Fitzpatrick because I feel like that's who he is. <laughs> I think he's going to do a lot of weird stuff first and second down, but third down, man, if you get a third and fourth down, that dude is going to kill you. That's what happened against Seattle where he just he just made plays on third down when the when it actually came down to it. He made the plays that he needed to. I think getting Curtis Samuel and Logan Thomas back in that offense is going to help. Terry McLaurin is amazing at receiver. But ultimately, this game is going to come down to the trenches on both sides of the ball. Two guys who came back for Washington on Monday night were Logan Thomas and, to a lesser degree, Curtis Samuel. And while I'm not a Heineke, I'm not part of the Heineke hive, heaven forbid, base boosted, whatever. <laughs> when you get the full complement of guys, they can do play the yak game a little bit better now. You've got your tight end back. You've got Samuel as a yak guy. So I think they're going to be able to move the ball. So – my, my curiosity about Washington is the defense seems to be playing better without Chase Young and Montez Sweat, which is not something doesn't that make logical sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but I will say their best defensive lineman, even with Chase Young and Montez Sweat in the game, has yeah. been Jonathan Allen. The yeah, yeah Allen's been really good, all pro level. He's been yeah. he's been playing at a high level for a while now. They rotate in Deron Payne, Matt Ionatis. They unleashed havoc on the Seattle interior offensive line. Mm-hmm. I think the Raiders office, interior offensive line is going to have their hands full with them, especially if Jonathan Allen can get going early. But like you guys said, their secondary is susceptible to so many coverage busts. Yeah. And 
it it was fascinating to see, especially on Monday against the Seahawks, and we all thought the game was dead, and all of a sudden, boom, Freddie Swain's wide open in the middle of the field. And just sitting there like, what happened? Right. Because their secondary just it's just like they forget that there's a guy running down the middle of the field. <laughs> like, just teleported right there. Yeah, right. Was the was believe it was supposed to be that the safety or someone was in the middle of the field was supposed to carry that guy and just didn't. The other thing I keep going back to is the Raiders' upset on Thanksgiving was nonsense. It was complete <laughs> nonsense. I mean, they didn't play poorly. I'm not going to say they played poorly, but that game was so over officiated. If you really start looking at who got plays taken away from them, who got calls that were iffy but like were like huge. Uh, huge leverage calls. It just kept going Raiders direction, Raiders direction, Raiders direction. Uh, of course, and of course the Cowboys, like you said earlier, were without some of their guys. So I don't look at that and say, well, this is a sign this team still has life. That looks at the time it looks like the you know the referees just kind of went insane and, and they and they gave them a game. Sounds like we're all leaning in the same direction on a pick here, even though we are all think the Washington secondary sucks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the line is Raiders by two and a half, and I feel like this game is a toss-up, so I would take Washington. I'm all in on the Heineke Hive, baby. I'm, <laughs> let's, let's roll with Washington. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm rolling with it, too. Uh, Washington. We're uh, too much. I'm scared. Another scared. 4 p.m. game. Uh Baltimore at Pittsburgh. Uh, Baltimore makes the playoffs in 98% of Sims when they win, 82% when they lose. The Steelers, 19% when they win, 3% when they lose. So, yeah, the Steelers are uh, definitely having some probs lately. We, we got to discuss the Steelers' offense because his last week against – the Bengals was the worst performance of offensive football that I've ever seen, and I am a Jaguars fan. I watch bad <laughs> football on the regular. That was terrible. Ben Roethlisberger is – he's cooked, man. He can't get any juice on those throws. Like that field out that turned to a pick six to Mike Hill, mm. that was a balloon. I feel like my two-year-old sister could have caught that pass. And he's just – it's not working anymore what that offense is trying to do. Like, they're trying to go deep with the vertical passes with Chase Claypool, Deontay Johnson, but you can't get them the ball. You're relying on the offensive line and Najee Harris to make up for all those in-between yards, and that offensive line can't do it either. So now you're relying on Big Ben to try and turn into something that he's not. It's just so many problems. And Big Ben is just – man, it's – I know it doesn't make an anime reference. It's like when the anime character is fighting the villain and you know the, the dude's going to die. Mm-hmm. You know he's going to lose this fight. But you can see he's fighting, but you know, like, yeah, it doesn't look the same. The specter of death has already appeared behind his head. Like, you know yeah. the end of the, of the story. The, the specter of death thought he got him last year. He's like, why are you still here doing this? He tripped and face-planted on a defensive lineman on a sack, and I just felt, I felt bad for him. The shock to me is that the Pittsburgh defense has been so bad. And I mean, some of it was they were missing guys for a couple games. But even before that, the Pittsburgh defense was like 20th or something. And right now it's 27th. Believe it or not, the Pittsburgh offense is ranked higher in DVOA than the Pittsburgh defense because Roethlisberger had some reasonable games early in the season. Right. Right, Man. they were manufacturing okay some offense there. I must point out, that meanwhile, offense that was supposed to carry that team has sucked. Yeah, I must yeah. point out, meanwhile, the Ravens have been playing nothing but mistake-free football in the last couple of weeks. Right, the Ravens <laughs> also do not look like themselves. The Ravens also look like a mess. The Steelers are the worst defense in the league on first downs, and the Ravens are close to the worst offense in the league on third downs. So that should be interesting. That's going to be a wild game, mainly because, like, the Ravens are weird, man. You you don't know what you're going to get for, like, the first three quarters. And in the fourth quarter, they just, boom, we can turn it to another level. They've been doing that the entire season, where they just turn it up to another level in the fourth quarter. Right. I don't know what yeah. we're going to get from this offense. But you can't do that when you're flat out handing turnovers over. Yeah, over, you can't over, do that. Over. You can't keep spotting the other team. And that's the one thing about Roethlisberger looks weak. He hasn't turned the ball over much. No, 
when you underthrow so far, even the defender <laughs> can't get to it. You've got that going for you. And so, <laughs> but this, hey, the grass has so many interceptions. <laughs> if if I'm a Ravens fan looking at this, and I'm not thinking in terms of the the rivalry in the history, my fear is the is the uh, Dolphins upset. Where you go in and say this team can't get out of its own way, we should just be able to run the ball against them, and you get that pass rush, and you get those mistakes, and all of a sudden the Dolphins are the one beating you. That's my fear for the Ravens. I mean, I'm picking Ravens to spoiler alert, but that's that's the template that the Steelers have to follow here. It's like we're not going to score a lot of points because our offense is a mess. Disrupt the daylights out of Lamar Jackson. Put those seven guys in the box and drop guys, et cetera. Force the turnovers. Try to win points off of turnovers. CCX3 wants to know why the hell are they not forcing the ball to Rashad Bateman 15 times a game? I don't know. I mean, because they Marquise Brown was a first-round pick. I mean, they and Sammy Watkins is a good veteran receiver. They've got good receivers. And for a while this season, Marquise Brown was playing good football. Yes, he was playing good He was playing player. really good football while Rashad Bateman was out. I think a lot of it has to do with – I think their offensive line has struggled a lot in pass protection. You can see it in the Miami game where they were trying to only – they were blitzing. They are only blocking with five. They are trying max protection. It wouldn't work. Right. I think what they have to start doing with Rashad Bateman is getting him involved in those speed outs. They kind of did it near the end of the Miami game where you get him on the quick outs, get him mm-hmm. quick slants, get him involved yeah. early. Like kind of marry that deep pass to Marquise Brown with the intermediate Mark Andrews with the short Rashad Bateman. Right. That's where Rashad Bateman fits in that offense, the short to intermediate level. And if you remember, they knew that that was the adjustment. They started running slant quick in. One was fumbled. A couple of them yep. were dropped, and so they weren't able to do that consistently. But Bateman would be the guy I go to on that because I don't think that's Marquise Brown's game, and I don't trust Not Sammy really Watkins. Sammy Watkins his game either. Yeah. Second? I don't think it's really Sammy Watkins' game either. No, it's Sammy really Watkins' game is getting injured after he has his one big game a year. But yeah. <laughs> you know. I think Greg Roman today did mention that they're going to start using Devin DuVernay in the backfield more as kind of like an option in the run game, which could be really fun because, I mean, who else is going to be back there uh, running the ball? I think on Sunday they mentioned Devontae Freeman and Bursa Speed, and I'm like, wait a minute. Devontae Freeman and Bursa Speed haven't been in the same sentence for a 27. minute. 2016, baby. It's been a while since I heard Devontae Freeman and Bertha Speed. They need that option in the run game, that consistent like home run threat next to Lamar Jackson because they really don't have that right now with Devontae Freeman or whoever else is left in that backfield. Or or, the Patterson thing is a trend. Yeah. Yeah, And in this case, it's totally a speed guy, though, because if they didn't have the burst of speed, at least it has to be like Gus Edwards who's just got a thud act. Thud extra yeah. yards, thud extra yards. And you, you don't get that because you're so many different backs who weren't with the team. Miscommunications and pass pro when they were asked to do that, all those little things. And I think that's been persistent throughout the year where it's like the, the running back of the day isn't necessarily reliable for the Ravens. Um, line is Baltimore by four and a half. Oh. 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 I'm going to go Baltimore. No meaning I don't want to bet that or no meaning. The final score to all Ravens Steelers games is 23 to 20. We all know this. This is a <laughs> fact. So four and a half is too much. I'm not taking the Steelers, but if I can't tease that thing down, I'm not going to play it. I think I would lean Baltimore. I think they're going to play enough mistake-free football, and I just don't think this Pittsburgh offense is it at all. I, just, I, I guess don't I'm leaning Baltimore too, but I go with what Mike is saying, which is all Baltimore-Pittsburgh games do feel like they all end up within three points. I would not want to bet on this game. Though. Right, right. I don't trust them. If I can pull a parlay together, move it down, it, it, <laughs> then, then yeah, but no, I'm going to stay away from it. Uh, Denver at Kansas City, the night game. Broncos make the playoffs in 54% of Sims when they win and 19% when they lose. The Chiefs, 90% when they win, 63% when they lose. I do want to point out that the Chiefs' offense riding the ship has not been quite as good as people think. Right. Only 27% and 21% offensive DVOA in the last two games. So it's not like they've been blowing people away on offense. The defense, on the other hand, yes. week yes. six, since week six, 
They are number two, number two yeah, in the that's league right. in defense behind that New England. Right. And one of the things that I think, one of the things I think helped was getting Melvin Ingram from the uh, Steelers because that allowed yes. Chris Jones to move back to three tech defensive tackle, yes. where he has just been a game wrecker. And I don't know why they thought that it would be any different because he's been a game wrecker at defensive tackle for his entire career. But now that you have him back there, you can start running your pressure schemes more. You can start getting pressure with only four because Chris Jones is going to take up at least three people. So mm -hmm. now you can add those blitzes. Now you can add those sim pressures. This defense has played at an extremely high level the past mm -hmm. few weeks. And if, if they can just match, if the Chiefs offense from like weeks one through four mm -hmm. matched up with the Chiefs defense the past couple of weeks, we would not be having a discussion about if the Chiefs were broken or not because they would be the best team in football. Right. But yeah. I just think the Chiefs offense has to figure out how to balance taking the deep shots with taking the taking what's given to you. I think they still struggle a little bit with kind of balancing those things out. I think leaning a little – not leaning a little bit more, but going to a little bit more of their under center run game they did it a little bit against the Raiders, but when mm -hmm. it got close, they went straight back the bombs away. <laughs> I think it'll mesh really well. Um, Denver's going to challenge them on defense. Vic Fangio is going to challenge everybody on defense. But yeah, even though the Denver defense has not been good, right? They've, I mean, they're kind of like averaged everything, but now that they've got their playmakers back on offense, they've got guys back. They've got Chubb back. They got, and on offense, they've got they've had. I mean, Judy's back, Patrick's back. Oh, well, the offensive guy, back. Yes, yeah, and the offense is back, so you get more reliability on offense. I think that's helped the defense to a degree. I think field position has helped the defense to a degree. Um, but what you're saying, another thing the Chiefs did, I think it was a couple weeks back, Charvarius Ward came back in the secondary. Yep. And it's like the knock-on effect. So now we can move him here, him here, move him here, Sorensen to special teams, et cetera, and you've got like some stability in the back end of the defense as well. Yeah, I think the point about the Broncos' offense is really important. I talked about it in, in a given Sunday where I compared the Chargers' offense to Gohan where they can unlock this huge potential, and Denver's Krillin, where with Teddy Bridgewater, this is as good as it's going to get. He's not going to make too many like, back-breaking mistakes that will make Vic Fangio want to strangle him because that's what <laughs> Drew Locke did last year. He tried to do it. In the, he tried to do it last you week. You saw that game. You he saw to, that. He tried to do it last week where he fumbled forward. It was the most hilarious play I've ever seen that actually worked. But <laughs> Teddy Bridgewater, what he does so well is he keeps the offense on schedule and he makes the throws necessary to keep the offense on schedule. And when he goes off schedule, it's kind of hit or miss. He made some good plays against the Chargers off schedule. But if he can get – if Steve Spagnuolo can get Teddy Bridgewater off schedule, get him yeah. under pressure – then he'll then he'll start to fold a little bit, and I think that's where the Chiefs will win the game. Line is Chiefs by nine and a half. It was ten. It's come mm. down a little bit. I I would go Denver. I feel like that line is a little too big, especially since the Chiefs are being driven more by defense than by offense right now. That keeps scores lower. So I like the Broncos plus nine and a half. Not as much as I liked the Broncos plus ten. That was better. <laughs> I am headed in your direction. That's in a very ambitious line. And I am looking right now to see over-under is only at 47 and a half. So I don't like going under as well. I'll probably lean towards the Broncos in this game, but I may look for a money line parlay so I can take my Chiefs and not worry as much about them clearing 10 points. Getting yeah, I would I would take the Broncos plus nine in this case. I think the Chiefs defense is definitely what's driving this team right now. And I think the Broncos defense will keep it close enough for like the first three quarters and maybe the Chiefs will like pull away to like a touchdown or yeah. something. But I'll, I like the Broncos plus nine. One more before Parker Fleming shows up to talk college. Let's just hit a little bit on Monday night. New England, the team that DVOA is probably overrating. At Buffalo, the team that DVOA is probably overrating. <laughs> Uh, the most important game of the week for Super Bowl odds, the playoff odds, Buffalo only makes the playoffs 78% of the time if they lose this game in our Sims. Remember, Buffalo has Tampa Bay next week. So that's yes. that's hard. It's, it's like it's like 
Patriots, Tampa Bay, some corny team, and then Patriots again for the for Carolina the is the corny team, by the yeah, way. They are the, the, <laughs> uh, the Super Bowl, making the Super Bowl odds by our numbers. And I realize that our numbers have the Patriots higher than everyone else and kind of have the Bills higher than everyone else, too. Uh, the Patriots make the Super Bowl 51% of Sims if they win this game, 33% if they lose. The Bills make it 26% of the time if they win, 12% if they lose. Uh, I'm not a Belichickian MK Ultra sleeper agent. Wow. Because if I was working for Belichick, I would absolutely say that the Patriots had less of a chance to make the Super Bowl. Right. What Belichick wants is for his players to think they have no chance. Right. He doesn't want his players to think they have a good chance. So if I was actually working for Belichick, I would have the Patriots much lower than this. I'm not happy to have the Patriots this high. If I have an outlier, I would rather not have it be the Patriots. But here we are. I mean – I objectively like watching the Patriots play football because it reminds me of um, the new um, – he's a new head coach at UMass, Don Brown, famous quote, solve your problems with aggression. That is the Patriots. <laughs> They're going to solve their problems by running into you as hard as they can and force you to break. Right. And they're so versatile in doing it offensively where they can pull out Jakob Johnson and go 22 personnel, I formation, and it just boom, hit you straight in the face. Jacob Johnson is basically a hammerhead shark, and him following Shaq Mason and that offensive line, they're going to break you. Hmm. Now, last week, they went to more 12 personnel where Jonu Smith was active, and they were able to run the ball, getting Tennessee kind of moving in different areas, and the play action worked really well. Against Buffalo, I think Buffalo is very built to – they're going to try and win with their four that they have. They're going to try and win with four. They're going to keep – their secondary out of it to kind of limit explosives. But I think they're going to try and there's going to be a game where they're going to try and break Buffalo, like over their knee. Buffalo is more of a game. And I'm not, I don't, I don't mean to diss them by saying that, but for example, their defense is more about uh, their defensive tackles are more pass rushers. They're really, they they have the good cornerbacks, although now no Tredavious White, that's a really big deal. Their offense is much more of a passing game offense than, the Patriots, it's more about the quarterback running than the running backs running. They seem like more of a finesse team, and that's not meant to be a diss, but the Patriots right. are super physical. Yeah, right. the Patriots are going to try and break them up front on both sides of the ball. I don't think the Bills' offensive line has been very good this year. I think they've been susceptible to a lot of pressure, especially with only four. And I don't see – yeah, the, I don't see the Bills' offensive line doing to the Patriots' run defense what the Titans' offensive line did. Yeah, and – it's really weird for the Bills because one of the things I don't think they can do is I don't think Josh Allen can be your only run threat as well as being your best passing threat. Right. They need they need some semblance of a run game coming from their running backs. They don't have that at all where it's now become Josh Allen, go do something cool, and forcing him to hold on to the ball really long, that – Josh Allen from 2019 might start to come out a little bit. It's very variant with what he's going to get. At the risk of suggesting that running backs matter, the Bills were a team that could have used a Nick Chubb. Yes. The Bills are like, oh, here's a guy who can, who will break tackles, or an Alvin Kamara, where it's like we're going to be such a passing team, but this guy's going to be such a weapon in the quick game, underneath game, screen game, et cetera. And that's potentially one of the things they lack. Also, just going to be the weatherman right now. You guys saw the uh, the weather reports coming out of Buffalo. This could be this is going to be a weather event game. We don't know whether it's going to be a rain game or a snow game or a wind game or all three. So price that into your predictions. That also, I would think, favor the Patriots. Probably. This is setting Probably. up like a Patriots 17-10 win where they're just going to hit you in the face for 60 minutes, and it's going to be cold, and they're going to hate it. Well, all right. Let's – yeah, let's do a pick because Parker's ready to come in. The, the line is Buffalo by two and a half. I'm taking the Patriots. Not trying to be a homer here, but. <laughs> I'm going to take the Patriots, man. Here. I'm going to take the Patriots, man. I think they're, it's very kind of overstated. Like when people say like, this is the team that nobody wants to play. It's kind mm-hmm. of that boogeyman every year. This is legit. The Patriots are legitimately the team nobody wants to play because now it's going to get cold. It's late in the season. You worry about getting hurt. And the Patriots is like, nah, we're just going to hit you in the face for 60 minutes and you're going to break. 
I am taking the Patriots as well, but you talked about that uh, 17-10 final, and I'm probably with the, the – the, the, oh, it went all the way down to 43, the over-under. I'm going to be looking Patriots and under plus 285. But I'm going to wait. Useful was first says Buffalo doesn't know about the cold. No, Buffalo knows about the cold. I just don't know if they're they're built. Their offense is built for the yeah, cold. Right. They're not. They're not a four on the floor offense. You yeah, know, they're, they're not. They're very built spread offense. Get everybody out. Go deep. And I don't think that's going to work in this game. The only the only reason I would shy away from taking the Patriots is just because let's be honest, the most likely scenario is a split. The most likely scenario yeah. is these teams are going to play twice in the next right. four weeks. Each team is going to win once. Right. And you would think that they would each win a home game, but it easily could go the other way. And right. so, yeah, I, the Patriots with this line, I take the Patriots. Let's bring in Parker Fleming now and let's talk about the college conference championship games. Hello, Parker. Hey guys, how's it going? Good. So we should start. I mean, the biggest game is Alabama, Georgia, right? Like, I don't know if that's necessarily the most exciting game, but that's the biggest game. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the most stakes uh, just because Alabama, you know, win and they're in the playoff and then the playoff gets complicated because there's two spots. Georgia's in regardless. And if, and if Alabama wins this game, then, you you know, you're, you have basically four or five teams fighting for those last two spots. Um, it's also interesting just because it does feel like in a big sense, this could be the uh, the the game that marked kind of the end of the Saban era of college football. He's had a really, really good run. Kirby hasn't uh, Kirby Smart hasn't been able to beat him. Maybe this is the game where the tide starts turning. Who knows? Uh, no pun intended there, but a really good game. Uh, you know, Georgia's defense, best unit in the nation, um, just historically amazing. And Alabama's offense, I think, um, has been a roller coaster. So it'll be interesting to see what, what they can do in the SEC championship. It was a roller coaster last week. That's for sure. Oh, buddy. That game yeah. was a whole roller coaster. I really am interested to see yeah. Georgia's defense. They are one of my favorite college units to watch. And, and, and they're just good at everything, man. Like yeah. there's no, like they're not better at one thing than the other. They are just good top to bottom. First and early downs EPA allowed, 15th and third and fourth down success. Um, first in points per quality possessions. Like even if you do move the ball, you're lucky if you're kicking a field goal. I mean, they're just, they're just excellent. Yeah. Um, I think I, I looked this up the other day. Georgia has kept offenses, opposing offenses to 27% of their season efficiency in games that they played Georgia. That's absurd. The next That's closest team is like 75th. It's insane, man. The way they play is like it's like they play fast, but it's not out of control. Like they have speed at every level, but they're so disciplined in how they use that speed. Where a play may work once, but it's not going to work again for the rest of the game. Where they they're like, <laughs> it's like the Terminator. You're playing the Terminator. You're playing eleven <laughs> Terminators on defense. Yeah, well, and you saw that. You know, the uh, everybody likes to talk about the Tennessee game and how Josh Heupel kind of marched out and they scored. And he did. They, they had a good script for the first like two drives and then Georgia adjusted and the Tennessee didn't do anything like, sure, you can you can move the ball a little bit in the beginning, but no one has had an answer for the adjustments all season on, on defense that Georgia's been able to do. So that's really impressive. I mean, it's especially impressive with college kids. Yeah, well, especially when you think about I, I mean, in the NFL where you feel like they've been through so many games and they've and that you know, gotten used to making halftime adjustments. And these are younger guys, and that's really impressive. Yeah, uh, JP, you just said the word discipline, and I think that stands out because they're fast and they're disciplined. And a lot of times, defenses that are over-aggressive are a little bit sloppy. They'll have a lot of missed tackles. They'll overrun assignments. They'll have to play catch-up. And, and your Terminator is a great comparison for it. They are just absolutely disciplined. They're robots, man. Um, they're swarming to the ball. They're not over-pursuing. And, and if something goes wrong, they're immediately adjusting and, and, and on the sidelines getting back out there and then fixing it. It's just it – is, it is really a master class in defense from Georgia this season. Yeah. Now, pardon me for not remembering for sure, but I believe, right, Alabama's loss is to Georgia, right? Uh, Alabama's loss is to Texas A&M earlier this oh, season. Oh, okay. So they haven't yep. played yet this year. Nope. No, no, they missed them in the regular season. So so that brings up the question, if Georgia wins this game, do you think they put a two-loss two Alabama team into the playoff? A lot would have to happen. Um, because if Georgia wins, right, Georgia's in, that's one spot. Yeah. Um, if Michigan wins, they're in, that's two spots. And then basically, you know, I, I'm of the opinion that if Oklahoma State wins, given that they just beat two top 10 teams, mm -hmm. they'll they'll be in as well. 
Um, but if Michigan loses, Oklahoma State loses, um, you have, you know, a one loss Notre Dame that's hanging around. You have undefeated Cincinnati if they win. With no, uh, one loss Notre Dame with no coach is hanging around. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, they're just they're just there. Um, and and I, I really do think that um, it would be maximum chaos. I, I, I am inclined to believe that the committee would put in a two loss Alabama before they would put in a one loss Cincinnati, which makes me feel very gross. And I hate that, yeah. that that's the system, but I think that's how the kind of the equilibrium works. Um, so Alabama fans, I mean, if they don't win, they're rooting for Iowa. They're rooting for Baylor to win a really fluky game against Oklahoma state because then Baylor will be two loss with a couple of top 25 wins. Maybe they're flirting with the playoff if they win the big 12 championship. So this year is the first year we've really had that line of, wow, there's a lot of teams kind of in that, you know, two to seven range, two to eight range that plausibly all have a similar claim depending on what happens this weekend. So, um, you know, Cincinnati is, they want to win and then they want Michigan to win and they want Georgia to win and uh, they're going to be in. And and, and so there, there's some clear paths for, you know, the P5 or the G5 team to get in. But uh, a two-loss Alabama, I think, has the best shot of any two-loss team, especially if they keep it close. Like if they go score 20-plus points on Georgia's defense, the committee's going to say, yep, that's that's basically a win against this defense. We're going we're gonna to put them in. Yeah, it's going to be interesting definitely to see because at that bottom of the of the playoff, if Georgia and Michigan went out, you have Cincinnati, you have Notre Dame, you have two-loss Bama, and then you have Oklahoma State. There's four teams, two spots there. I think Cincinnati is obviously rooting for Georgia to blow them out. Just get it done already. Put the nail in the coffin so they can get into the playoff. I think they're also rooting for a Michigan win because, I mean, they they need they need to win their game and they'll be in, really. Just handle business. Cincinnati just needs to handle business. Yeah, for, I mean, for the, well, well, and for the first time, uh, a G5 team does have the opportunity of the, the more normal things go this weekend – the more likely it is that they'll get in, which has never been the case in the history of the playoff. And um, I still believe that the playoff committee will do everything they can to plausibly keep a, a G5 team out, but it might just be the case where they have no option other than to put Cincy in. So which game do you feel like, the SEC game is really the number one game. Which do you feel like is the number two game of this weekend? Like if you're going to watch two games, you watch the SEC game and... Um, I would probably lean towards, uh, I have a real one and a weird one. I would lean towards the Big 12. I think that Oklahoma State's defense is extremely um, underappreciated. Um, they are they are very good. Jim Knowles has done a great job of, um, uh, you know, really uh, adjusting on the fly this season, getting some guys. They, they had some guys that are early uh, unhealthy. They've gotten some guys healthy back. They've gotten some guys to replace. Um, they have five legitimate dudes who can get to the quarterback from any position in the front seven. Very, very scary. Uh, there, Malcolm Rodriguez is a great defender. I want to watch them take on Jeff Grimes' offense at Baylor. So Gary Bohannon, Baylor's quarterback, has been dealing with a hamstring injury. Looks like he's practicing. That's been a very good unit. They're very well coached. Very few penalties. They run a lot of play action wide zone, which is not what you see in um, college football often. And they basically installed a brand new office uh, offense in March. And so what they've been doing uh, kind of short uh, season has been very, very um, fun. So I think that game is really, really good. The other one to look at the Sun Belt App State, Louisiana is a huge, huge rivalry. And uh, G5 football is underappreciated. These are two high quality teams. Sean Clark at App State got Chase Bryce from Duke. Chase Bryce was a turnover machine last year. They have asked him to do very narrow things, very specific things, and he has done them so well. They have a very fun offense. Louisiana, a really good story. Billy Napier is going to take the football job or the Florida job, which I suppose is a football job. Um, but the team and the boosters and everyone understands this is you're stepping up. You're not doing us dirty. We support you. We want to go out on a good note. Um, and so a really fun Sunbelt matchup as well. All right. That one is at 3.30, I should point out. SEC is at 4. Big 12 is at noon. Oh, wow. uh, what about the Big Ten, which is at eight o'clock, and that's Michigan and Iowa? Uh, I don't advise anyone to go out of their way to watch oh, Iowa's Lord. offense. <laughs> this, this might be a throwback to like 1910 football. Yes. Um, I, I'm almost, I, I'm sure you guys have seen the gif of like the 1940s player who's, who's like shot putting the football. Yeah, I almost yeah, expect us to see that happen. Yeah, oh, so they wear the Pittsburgh um, Steelers colors and they look like the Pittsburgh Steelers offense. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I do think that Michigan should handle this one pretty, pretty well. They, they have a really, really good big play defense or excuse me. 
a, a big play offense. And last week they showed that their rushing game can be immensely physical. The really only other physical team that Iowa has played this year is Wisconsin. And Iowa got thoroughly outclassed 27 to seven, losing to Wisconsin there. Um, Iowa's offense, I think, ha- has been a little bit better than advertised or, or, or kind of the memes have been. Like last week against Nebraska, five of their first six drives were quality possessions. They just one, one or two little things went wrong and, and they found themselves in a deficit. They were able to come back because those things started going right in the second half due to some adjustments. So I don't expect them to score on Michigan's defense. Um, I, I do expect this to be a low scoring kind of rock fight, but uh, Jim Harbaugh is his best shot to win a national title at Michigan ever. I think the stakes are really high. And I think uh, given the uncertainty with the playoff, Michigan has no intention of taking uh, you know their feet off the, off the gas. And they've largely been free of kind of the special teams turnover nonsense that has so uh, been the hallmark of Iowa's season. Iowa makes you, makes you fumble, pins you deep, flips the field, and then intercepts it for a touchdown or recovers a fumble on your own too and scores a, 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 you know, a two-yard uh, touchdown on offense. So I think if Michigan can avoid turnovers, which they have been, and special teams nonsense, they should win this handily. But it will be, like you said, a, a hearty kind of old-school football game for sure. Yeah, one of the things that's intrigued me about Iowa's offense, I think Bill Connolly posted a stat that no quarterback for Iowa this season has posted, a, I think, a passer rating over 100. So they're asking – Kurt Ferentz is asking the quarterback to do very, very little. But it's worked for so long. But I just don't know if it's going to work against Michigan's defense because they're going to ask – they're going to force him to make big plays. They're going to force him to make the throws. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that's what I would do is I I don't care if it's Alex Padilla, the backup, or if it's Spencer Petras, I'm saying you have to beat me through the air. And, and Iowa state is really, or excuse me, Iowa has really not been able to do that. I did look this up earlier this season. Um, at one point, I more, more than halfway through the season, Iowa's average scoring drive, average touchdown drive started on the opponent 47. Wow. Um, <laughs> they're benefiting that's a absurd. lot. absurd. And, and that way overweights efficiency, way makes people think that, oh my gosh, they're better than they look. Like they are truly abysmal. And if you can just avoid a short field, you can win pretty easily against this offense. That's been the thing about Iowa. If you can avoid the turnovers and the weird special team stuff, you're probably going to beat them. But Iowa's just been so – Early in the season, they were so good at forcing turnovers where it just happened like every play where you saw a muff punt, a muff fumble. They were they returned it for a touchdown, but that's kind of petered off near the end of the season because people know how to protect the ball. Yeah. And, and one thing that's really unique about college is opponent adjustments. I mean, they played Indiana, who was ranked at the time and is awful this season, just completely falling apart. Iowa State looked like they were going to be a playoff contender, seven and five. They played a MAC team, Colorado State, Maryland. Like their first five games were against very bad teams. And good teams demolish bad teams. But I think the the Iowa defense hype train maybe got a little bit out of control based on some of those opponents, how they've looked the rest of the season. Yeah, I, I caught a little bit of fire on Twitter for that. <laughs> I caught a little bit of fire on Twitter saying Iowa's defense isn't what we think it is. Uh-uh. And then they lost to uh, Purdue. And I'm like, see, there it is. Um, what about, let's, let me ask about one other game, which is uh, Pac-12, because that one's on Friday night on its own. Uh, Oregon and Utah, what is there to watch there? Well, they they played uh, two weeks ago in Utah, and Utah just uh, pants them, for lack of a better oh, yeah. term. I'm sorry, that's a little informal. Oh, yeah. But Utah just lined up and said, hey, man, we're going to do whatever we want on you. That game was over uh, going into half, and in the first half, Oregon punted and Utah ran it back, just icing on the cake of like, this is absolutely a blowout. So the question is, of course, how much can change in two weeks to take a game that was 38-7 uh, and, and make it, you know, go in Oregon's favor. I, I really do think, despite having, you know, maybe the NFL number one draft pick in in Thibodeau, Oregon's defensive line is a really poor unit. I think that's because people are able to key in on him, and and nobody else is really able to make a play. But uh, Utah just they, they didn't like scheme or trick or run around Oregon. They just lined up and pushed them around. And so it'll be interesting to see how Oregon kind of counterpunches that rushing. Um, uh, attack. They're 64th in EPA per rush, and Utah is second in EPA per rush. Really efficient um, Utah rushing. Uh, and so 
And the, the interesting thing to see, if Oregon commits to try and stop the physicality aspect of the game, Cam Rising has been pretty good through the air. Utah 15th in EPA per pass. Maybe they can go over the top. So the punch-counterpunch narrative for Oregon's defense is absolutely there. Um, on the flip side, Oregon's really struggling with quarterback play. They're 32nd in EPA per pass, um, but they're 18th in passing success rate. And so when you see a disparity there of like, you know, pretty high success rate, but relatively lower EPA, that means you're not very explosive, right? You're not generating big plays. And that's how the game is won and lost is big play passing. Uh, if, if Oregon can't generate anything through the air with Anthony Brown, it doesn't matter if they can rush for four or five yards here and there. They're, they're going to struggle on drives like we saw two weeks ago. Yeah, that's one of the things that I noticed, like when Oregon and Utah first played, Utah ran the ball for 208 yards, but I don't think they had a run over like 10 yards. It was like nine yards, seven yards eight yards. They were basically lining up and then Stone Cold Steve Austin opening the can of whoop ass on the Ducks defense consistently. It wasn't like explosive big plays. They were just punching them in the face. So it's going to be interesting to see if Oregon wants to do that again, because not a lot of teams want to do that again. Yeah. Well, and, and I hate using the, um, I hate using words like this about like college athletes. So don't hear what I'm not saying here, but like, you, you know, they're going to kick the ball off and Oregon's going to line up and they're going to remember two weeks ago and either they're going to say, you know what, we can do better or like, shoot, that was really unpleasant. Uh, I don't know that I want to do this again. Yeah, so. I don't know if there's a difference between college athletes and pro athletes on that because with the pros, like there are lots of examples in the NFL where you end up with a blowout and then those teams come back two or three weeks later and all of a sudden it's a close game. Like the example I always bring up is 2010, the Patriots and the Jets where the Patriots won by 45 to three and then they played like three weeks later. And, but you have to remember the NFL is the top players from college, right? So what happens when you have run of the mill players from college? Like I would think that how things affect them psychologically is different than how it affects professionals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, things are definitely prone to spiral more in college football. You know, that's why with a lot of stats, you got to throw out garbage time. A good example of that this year is, you know, Arkansas, Georgia, Georgia basically scored on their first three possessions. They stopped Arkansas and Arkansas said, all right, we're good. We'll just run the ball, get out of here. Like, that's fine. We're going to lose. <laughs> um, and, and, and another thing that you see that might, that might rear its head in Oregon, Utah, uh, uh, among any of the Pacta or any of the championship games is in college football, or Oregon's very high, top 10 recruiting, top 10 team, team talent. And Utah's good, but they're not anywhere near elite. And so you have that asymmetry. Where that really comes out is not like offensive versus defensive line or quarterback versus cornerbacks or anything. That comes in special teams, right? That's, you know, Oregon is playing four, three and four stars on their special teams units, whereas Utah is playing walk-ons, two stars, three stars on their special teams unit. And so that, you know, at the margin is something that's really interesting in terms of motivation. Those guys are often very hungry, want to prove themselves, but the talent gap is really, really magnified. That's why I feel like special teams you know, uh, affects the outcome of so many more games in college football than it does in, um, in NFL, just because again, you, you have these guys who are, who are obviously less talented that are playing more reps for, for some of these teams that aren't as deep in terms of team talent. Todd Singer points out there aren't a lot of rematches in college football for comparison. And that is absolutely true. It is rare yeah, for, for sure. it is more often in the conference championship era since we started having these conference championship games, but it is fairly rare for teams to play twice in one. Before we go, I should at least ask you and get your take. What is your take on the coach movement this week? Like the Riley going to USC and Kelly going to LSU. And do you, do you feel like it says something larger about like where the sport is going? Or do you feel like it, it was very specific to the situations of these two guys where they just felt like they had a better chance to win a national championship at this other school? Yes. Yeah, so I'll go uh, general and then specific on, on both of those, those there. I, I do think there's an arms race in college football. It was kind of kicked off by Oklahoma and Texas joining the SEC this summer or announcing their, um, their intent and, and, and plan to join the SEC. Um, college football is in becoming increasingly corporatized uh, and that's based on the, the lucrative TV revenue. Like that's just an undeniable fact of college football that TV money is so stupid. And, and in college football, there are haves and there are have nots. And if you can get in on the piece of that TV money, you're, you're set. So there, there's kind of this bifurcation, polarization in, in college football. And, and uh, both of these moves were grounded in, in that kind of bigger narrative. So when Oklahoma, uh, you know, said they were going to join the SEC, Lincoln Riley went to the administration and said, hey, 
here, here's what we need to do to play ball in the SEC. Here's what needs to happen. And Oklahoma kind of was wishy-washy, and Lincoln Riley said, nope, I'm going to the Pac-12, easier path. I won't have to ask for money. Um, I'll get whatever I want, a uh, bunch of California recruiting. So that that's definitely a result of how how important the the very top, being at the very top level is there. Lincoln Riley said, I'd rather go somewhere else than, than be hamstrung here at Oklahoma, a blue blood of all blue bloods. Um, Brian Kelly, I think, is LSU doing the same thing, flexing a little bit. I don't think they got their guy. I think they wanted uh, Dave Aranda. I think they thought they had Lincoln Riley as a head coach. And so, again, they hired Brian Kelly as much as anything to keep their program stable and competing at a high level for the next couple of years, but also just to flex in the arms race and say, hey, we're LSU. We can go take Notre Dame's coach. That's something there. So there's a college football arms race. I mean, you see, I think I just saw somebody in the comments talk about Mel Tucker getting 95 million at Michigan State this year. that, you know, college football has a ton of money and the the name image likeness stuff that's going to start compensating players um, a, a little bit is going to change this dynamic, I, I think, for the benefit of players. But the game is going to be different just because it, there is going to be a free agency. There are going to be off field issues that really dictate where these guys want to go. Um, it's 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 fascinating. And the coach realignment, I think, is people just trying to get their affairs in order before the next round of TV contracts are signed. Mm. I'm just I'm blown away. Because you think of Notre Dame and Oklahoma as top, like blue chip top oh, yes. programs. Yes. And the idea that you would leave those to go anywhere other than the NFL right. or Bama seems crazy. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It does. Or I, I just saw this uh, Tom Herman's working as an analyst for the Bears. He was the coach of Texas. And someone asked him if he was looking at coaching jobs. And he was like, uh, no, I'm making more money and I get to hang out with my family on the weekends. I think I'm good. Like being in the NFL, yeah. I'm going to be, I'm not going to go back to the stress of college and recruiting and everything. He's collecting buyout money. I'm, I'm cool with going yeah. back. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I joke that I'm in the wrong line of work. You know, Jimbo Fisher has like 75 million guaranteed. And I was like, yep. shoot, I'm in the wrong line of work. I need a contract that pays me 75 if I do a bad job. Man, Mel Tucker got that $95 million contract. I'm like, geez, I need to go start coaching somewhere. Collinsworth got $19 million. Keep doing this, and maybe we can announce our way up to the <laughs> When they don't have to pay the players, there's a lot of money for the coaches. A lot of money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and one, one thing to look there, too, is I, I think they're working towards compensating players, and NIL is a good, a good way to kind of balance that. But assistant coaching pool and kind of these off-field resources, that's where a lot of this money is going to. And that's something specifically Lincoln Riley was arguing about. He's like, hey, I want to hire a big name OC. I shouldn't have to argue for money about how much to pay him. I should just tell him to come and we'll get him in whatever he wants. And, and, and coaches are, you know, coaches are taking a little less salary. Universities are committing more funding to kind of these assistant pools as down the roster of coaches, they get more important as college football becomes more of a business uh, overall. All right. Thanks, Parker, for joining us and talking about this weekend's college football championships. We'll have you back when we get to the uh, college football playoff in a few weeks. Awesome. JP Acosta, Mike Tanier, thank you guys for joining me. Thank you all for watching or listening afterwards on the podcast network. Don't forget we're here at 1 p.m. Eastern every day. Tomorrow is Scott Spratt with the Fantasy Show to get you ready for DFS and your lineups for the weekend. I'll be back on Monday to review week 13 and pre do more previewing of Monday, the big Monday night football game. And everybody enjoy Dallas and New Orleans tonight and college games this weekend. And I'll see you on Monday. Goodbye, everybody. See ya.